0: All right, you guys, good job. Sounds like there's some animated conversation going on out there, but I'm going to need you to wrap it up. Wrap it up. Reign it in. Wow, that was good. Good listening, guys. Thank you. So anybody want to throw out their overhyped? Just real quick, just what it is. Chris, <laughs> yes, bah, humbug. All right, Dan. Yes, anybody else? What's that? Oh, no, the answer to that first question, oh. the overhyped stuff. The special kid's yogurt. Oh. <laughs> a soup that I made. A soup that you made? Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, so not to, like, start a thing or anything, but uh, there were two that came to mind, right? Um, the Ring of Power on Amazon, overhyped. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Um, and, and Pepe's Pizza. So, <laughs> see, like I said, I didn't mean I didn't mean to start a thing. All right, all right, all right. So here's listen, you guys. Here's here's the most underhyped thing. And um, recently, Gail and I got to have breakfast with Ben and Brittany. And so here's if you guys ever get the opportunity to have breakfast with them, accept the invitation because they serve dessert at breakfast, right? So that's just <clears throat> um, they said you. Try this truffle. You like chocolate. You'll probably like this. And Brittany handed this thing to me, and I put it in my mouth. And I have never experienced chocolate like this before in my life. Right now, I'm, th- I'm running the risk of overhyping what I'm doing here. But this chocolate truffle was the single most amazing thing I've ever tasted. So, <clears throat> um. <laughs> It's good. It's very, very good. Um, so, where am I going with, with this talk, right? And we've used the word amazed. I've used the word amazed a couple of times. And as I was getting us ready to dive into the Gospel of Mark, which is what you have in your journal. Those are for you to keep. There's a page of scripture, a blank page you can take notes in. There's some discussion questions in the back. A bunch of, bunch of good stuff. Um, I was struck. Mark repeats himself a lot. But one of the things that he repeats is amazed. The people were amazed. The disciples were amazed. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were amazed. Jesus was amazed at his hometown and not in a good way. Jesus amazed Pontius Pilate. And then the end, the way Mark ends his gospel, is an invitation for all of us to be amazed at the resurrection of Jesus. So our hope and our prayer is that as we spend time in this gospel, that you too would be amazed with who Jesus is, and what he did, and what, what, he, um, what he still does. So I'm going to do a real quick introduction to the Gospel of Mark, and then we're going to look at the first amazed passage. So Mark, his full name is actually John Mark. Um, we know little bits and pieces about him. We know his mother was super important to the Jerusalem church because she hosted most of it, or a good, a good part of it. We know through his relationships with Paul and Barnabas, if you guys were here with us for our study in the book of Acts, you, maybe you might remember that um, John Mark went with them on their first missionary road trip. They were out and about telling people about, about Jesus. Something happened. We don't know what happened on that trip, but John Mark didn't like it, and he left. He kind of abandoned, abandoned the team. So Paul and Barnabas come back to our hometown, and they're getting ready to head out on their second road trip. And Barnabas wants to take John Mark with him. Paul says, no way. I don't trust this guy. He flaked on us the first time. I'm not bringing him again. And they disagreed about it so severely that they parted ways. And Barnabas and and John Mark went one direction. Paul and Silas went in, um, in another direction. We learn in Paul's later on writings that somehow that relationship between Paul and Mark was restored. Paul even goes on to refer to Mark as helpful in ministry. Um, he is vital to the, the gospel narrative in, the, uh, in the, the New Testament. But I want to push pause here for a second because I want to draw your attention to the actual structure of the Bible. Right? When, the, when the early church was discovering those writings that Scripture itself calls God-breathed, those writings that were inspired by God, there were a couple of criteria that they used. Apostolic authorship, meaning did an apostle write it, somebody who spent time with Jesus. Apostolic content. Does the content of a writing match up with the writing of known apostles at the time? And lastly, is it widely accepted? Did the, uh, the majority of churches accept the teaching in the letter? Churches at Rome and Carthage and Antioch and Ephesus. Was it widely accepted? So I'm stopping here because John Mark was not an apostle. right? So why, why was this included in the New Testament? The 26 books that we call the New Testament that all kind of got wrapped up by the end of the 4th century. What is widely accepted is that the writings of Mark are actually the accounts of Peter's interactions with Jesus So it was accepted based on Peter's apostleship. Does that make sense? So Mark, and there's, um, there's a verse in First Peter where, where Peter refers to Mark as his son, just like Paul referred to Timothy as his son. So there's this connection that Mark spent a lot of time with Peter and he captured um, Peter's, Peter's thoughts. and you can tell that when you look at the actual text of the book of Mark, the accounts specifically of Peter, are super vivid in comparison to some of the other accounts. The literary um, structure of it is very similar to one of Peter's sermons in, in Acts 10. So there's that connection. I just wanted to make sure that we were all good on that. We understood John Mark was not an apostle, but his writings are accepted because he had that direct contact with, um, with Peter. The book was written in about the mid-50s, and the reason why that's important is because the the Christians who would have been the first audience of this book were living under the reign of the Roman Emperor Nero, who was infamous for his horrific persecution of Christians at the time. So these early, early baby believers were facing uh, an uncertain future, and that would be an understatement, to say the least. the literary structure of the book, the book is kind of divided into two halves. Chapters 1 through 8, and then 8 through 16. And uh, according to a scholar, Dr. Tim Mackey, he thinks about chapters 1 through 8 as Mark telling the story of Jesus as mighty Messiah and Son of God. We'll hear those words and those phrases and that emphasis being repeated through in chapters 1 through 8. And then in the back half, it's, how Jesus redefines what he wants people to think of when they think of Messiah. The Jewish people were hoping for, were thinking about a conquering warrior king. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he turns that idea on its head and he's bringing salvation to the people of Israel, to the world, by becoming the suffering servant. And that's what the back half of um, of the, it is about. The... Um, there's, it's not like a, a continuous storyline, right? Mark grabs these discrete units from, uh, from Peter, and then the, the thread that weaves them all together is Jesus himself. The, if, you, if you think about what you're actually reading as you read, it's really fast-paced, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later, but there is a ton, a ton of action. Like right out of the gate, verse 1-1, Mark comes out with this. The beginning... Of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. So, right away, it's important to mark that we know who Jesus is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. <clears throat> and then, in the first 20 verses, he moves, he goes fast. We learn about John the Baptist. We learn about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus. We learn about Jesus heading out into the wilderness to, for fasting and to be tempted. Jesus comes back. John is arrested. Jesus calls the first four apostles. And then we find the key verse, right? John wants us to know who Jesus is, but also what he came to do, Mark 1.15. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, and he's here to call people to repentance and to let them know that the kingdom of God is near. And the rest of the book goes to emphasize those two points. How are we doing? Okay? Yes. Son of the Messiah and the Son of God. Yep. Yeah, that was a lot. You, are there other questions? And I went kind of fast. Good? Okay. Um, so I'm going to read through the first, what I call the first amaze passage. And this is in chapter 1, and it starts in verse 21. And I'm going to stop sporadically. It starts in verse 21, goes through verse 34. And I'm going to stop sporadically and make some, make some comments as, as I go. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Often, um, I will encourage everybody to read different versions of the Bible, and this is a great example of why. That phrase that I have highlighted, when the Sabbath came, and what I, this is an eye chart, I apologize. Um, different translations capture that differently, right? Oh man, that's really bad, sorry. So this is the NIV. This is what we put up on the screen. This is what we read from. Right? It says, when the Sabbath came. The New American Standard says, immediately on the Sabbath. The Disciples' New Literal Translation, immediately on the Sabbath. King James Version, straight away on the Sabbath day. That phrase, we're going to come back to that phrase um, in a couple minutes. But that idea of the immediacy of what Jesus is doing. Mark repeats over and over and over and over again. So as you're doing your own reading, your own studying, use something like Bible Gateway and, and check out different versions as you're, as you're reading through this stuff. The people were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Amazed, astonished, surprised, pleasantly, like really an unknown thing is, is happening in a way that is taking hold of the people. And that word authority is simply power. It's a power that they had not experienced before. Just then, a man in their synagogue was possessed by an impure spirit, cried out, "Why? What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. So this is kind of like, I'm digressing a little bit here, but I just, as I was reading this, I was struck by the idea that this impure spirit was fine in the synagogue until Jesus showed up. So there is a lack of the feeling of the spirit of God, God's presence there. I wonder how an evil spirit would feel in our church. Think they would sit comfortably, or would they be agitated? That's just a freebie. You guys can think about that one. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching, and with authority? There are those two words paired together, amazed and authority. He even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. So this is NIV translating that same word everywhere else. It's immediately or straight away. Right, different phrase, as soon as, but emphasizing the point of the immediacy of what Jesus is doing. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand, and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. In the Old Testament, there's a couple of different places where a fever is associated with God's judgment. Right, and I... This text does not say Peter's mother-in-law did anything to deserve God's judgment. I'm just pointing out that some of the original audience would have read this, could have read this, saw that Jesus showed up and removed the fever that Peter's mother-in-law had. The judgment that was blocking relationship, Jesus was showing up and he was taking that away. He was restoring relationship between God and people. That's what he came to do. Does that make sense? All right. That evening after sunset, the people brought Jesus, brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door. These folks were obviously physically in a bad way. But because of their physical ailments, they were also outcasts. They were marginalized. They were oppressed. They were forgotten about. They were pushed out of society at large. So not only were they hurting physically but they were hurting socially and emotionally. Right? And Jesus never shied away from those folks. He often went to them directly. They, the whole town lined up at the door. He opened his arms for all of them. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. I just want you to remember that phrase, that Jesus didn't let the demons speak. Right? We're going to come back to that. All right. So, what was so amazing about Jesus in this first amazed? It was his power, right? His ability to influence people and things, and even super supernaturally to to influence things, right? So that's the the crux of, of what we're talking about is Jesus's power. I don't know about you guys, but I have been I've been on both sides of um, power dynamics, right? When I, was, when I was a kid, third grade was a rough year, man. It was a rough year. Um, I was, when I was in third grade, I was average third grade size, but my head was only a little bit smaller than it is right now, and my ears were the same size, right? <laughs> and my feet were even smaller, so I was like really top heavy, and, and I just I got picked on a lot. And the, the bigger kids were just brutal, just brutal. Um, and it was, they had power because they were bigger and they were, they were older. They kind of ran, ran the school. So I've experienced that end. And I'm sure some of you have experienced it, unfortunately, in different, different ways. The flip side of that, I had an experience when I was in the corporate world. Um, I was part of a team that called on our largest customer, uh, like 30% of our entire business. And my boss took a job with another company. And I I didn't realize this until this morning. I didn't really think about it. We sold toilet paper. He went from selling toilet paper to diapers. So like, I don't know if there's like, (laughs) I I don't know. I don't know what that's about, Um, but he left the company. So I was the senior person on the team. I was like 27 years old, hundreds of millions of dollars that I'm responsible for. And the higher ups are trying to find somebody, to hire the right person to run the team. And we're maybe six or eight weeks into this. And one of the people who I worked with said to me, you know, you've changed. And I was like, oh, like, yeah, you're not like you're not Tom anymore. Like what happened? And I didn't I didn't have an answer for for the person in the moment. But I had kind of stepped back and I realized, one, I was stressed out of my mind um, but two, the, the mentors and the way that I had seen things done previously was like dominating type A, just run over whoever you needed to, to to make sure things happened. And apparently that was some of how I was conducting myself. Not proud of that, but in hindsight, I can, I can recognize that. And I, I throw those two ends of the spectrum out there to get to our big idea And that's this, is that Jesus is urgent about the compassionate use of his astounding power. Jesus is urgent about the compassionate use of his astounding power. And what is it that he does with his power? He teaches, he heals, and he restores. Jesus shows up, and he doesn't draw attention to himself. He draws attention to God the Father, to his loving kindness, to his mercy, to his grace, his forgiveness right we just went through the book of philippians jesus though in very nature god did not consider equality with god something to be grasped he taught people he redirected people he healed people and he himself him i didn't the healthy don't need a doctor right i came to heal the sick that which has been broken jesus comes to fix and to make whole again and to restore and I was kind of thinking about Jesus' interactions, and we'll see more of them as we go through the Gospel of Mark, his interactions with these people who are plagued by these spirits, by these evil spirits. So not only does Jesus teach and fix, but He He restores that which the enemy has stolen. The impure spirit he cast out of the first man, the, the multiple demons that he cast out, right? The ground that the enemy took going all the way back to Genesis, right? The ground that he took, Jesus is beginning the process of restoring. And that process is still going on. But Jesus exerts his power to teach, to heal, and to restore. He exerts his power with a sense of urgency. This is going back to that phrase that I highlighted. You know, Mark used, or the NIV used when or as soon as. That word is used some fifty odd times in the New Testament. Forty of which, forty of which are in the Gospel of Mark. So, and it's kind of like even our word immediacy and urgent don't really do it justice because, like, my mind jumps to like running around like a chicken with my head cut off, right? It's like Jesus didn't move like that. We don't see that in any of his gospels. I found this really great great quote from um, a scholar named A. W. Pink. I'm going to read to you the, the whole thing. Um, so this is describing this, Jesus's immediacy of the, the how he used his power. In all this, this word is found no less than forty times in Mark's gospel. It is a most suggestive and Im- expressive term, bringing out the perfections of God's servant by showing us how he served. There was no tardiness about Christ's service, but straight away. He was ever about his father's business there was no delay but immediately he performed the work given to him to do this word i love this word this word tells us of the promptitude of his service and the urgency of his mission there was no holding back no reluctance no slackness but a blessed immediateness about all his work we should all learn from the perfect example which he has less left us jesus was not a slacker he was not lazy. He was not lackadaisical. He was never late. We can trust Jesus with the timing of the use of his power. And finally, the, um, the agenda of his power. I asked you to remember about how he, asked the, he told the evil spirit not to speak of him, right? Don't, don't say anything. All the people that he healed, don't, don't say anything about about what I did. We'll see that throughout the gospel of Mark. Even people who he healed like a, there's a leper that he heals the same same thing, don't say anything to anybody. Why would Jesus not want that free publicity? Right? Why why would he and it's that like Jesus was not going to let his power be shaped, corrupted, influenced by anybody or anything. He knew the human heart. He knew that the people of Israel wanted a king to come and physically conquer and crush the Roman Empire. And Jesus knew that was not what he came to do. Right? So he keeps this, scholars refer to it as the messianic secret. Right? He, keeps, he wants to keep this messianic secret because the secret to his power is that instead of being crushed, or instead of crushing the Roman Empire, he's going to be crushed by them on the cross. And it's through being that suffering servant and his death on the cross that he frees us from sin and from bondage, and that he offers that teaching and that healing and that restoration. So, all that to say, we can trust Jesus with his unlimited power, right? And I go back to that big idea that I put up there, the way Jesus directs us to God, the way Jesus does not try to steal God's glory, but only amplify, only amplifies it, Um, the way that Jesus heals those who are sick, the way that he restores that which has been stolen. So I would just ask you to think about what it is that Jesus might be saying to you about power this morning. If you're here this morning and you have found yourself on the wrong side of power having been abused by it first off I'm sorry that you had to go through that if you felt the the misuse of power because of how you think or how you how you relate to people or because of the color of your skin or because of your sex or because of how you dress. You need to know that you can trust Jesus with his power. If, on the other hand, you are someone who sits in a position of power, let Jesus be the perfect model of what to do with power, to redirect people to God, to teach, to heal, and to restore. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your omnipotence, for your ultimate perfect power. Thank you that you, you hold that power perfectly, You're never late. You're just on time with it. You will not be swayed in in how you use it. It's only for God's glory and for our good that you use it. Thank you so much that we can trust you with it. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you.